Oh, Lord, have mercy. He does. That's good news, too. You got to... What are you trying to do, babe? Yeah, you can turn the lights on. That'll help me see. <clears throat> you don't need to use that, hon. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9, so if you got your Bibles with you, open up to Isaiah chapter 9. And uh, we'll begin uh, at about verse 8. Remember as we're going through the book of Isaiah, especially where we're at right now, all the way through to about chapter 12, it's a word from the Lord during the time of Ahaz the king. It is those prophecies leading up to uh, the taking of the northern kingdom by Assyria and God's word to the southern kingdom that Assyria is not going to take them. Uh, Now, the southern kingdom is still going to go into captivity. They go into captivity to Babylon. You guys remember the story of Daniel, right? When Nebuchadnezzar came, that'll be when they go into captivity. Remember when also when we look at the northern and southern kingdoms, when we look at them, what you're going to see is primarily those in rebellious or in rebellion against the Lord are in the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom has set up their own idols they've set up golden calves again just like in the book of exodus they've got golden or golden calves there in in the uh, city of dan they don't the king of the northern kingdom does not want the people that were all a part of israel at one time to go to jerusalem to worship he's afraid if they go to jerusalem to worship they'll stay there so he set up his own style of worship and they did that the entire time the northern kingdom was separated from the southern. So folks, what the Bible lays out for us is that those who desired to have a relationship with the Lord, to serve him, to follow him, they traveled south. And those in the south who really didn't care about the Lord and wanted to have the fun that they were having in the north, they would go up to the north. Now, the leaders of the different families or the tribes of Israel, 10 of them were in the north. And two of them were in the south. The only ones in the south, Judah and Benjamin. Everyone else was in the north. But we don't want to get the idea, I know we've touched on this a few times, that there are somehow ten lost tribes. Each of the kingdoms, southern and northern kingdom, each kingdom had within that kingdom the representative of each of the twelve tribes of Israel. They had them all a part of it. Just it was a separation or a division between those who desired to follow the Lord went south. Those who desired to rebel against him went north. The northern kingdom is going to go into captivity first. And they're going to be, for the most part, primarily assimilated. And you're not ever going to see them come back. The southern kingdom is going to go into captivity for 70 years in the land of Babylon. And at the end of the 70 years, they will return into the land. And they will again be, begin to move forward with the Lord. Ultimately, we're going to see Rome eventually become that, the, the governing authority over the land of Israel. And then in 70 AD, we'll see the land of Israel cease to exist for the next 2,000 years plus. And until May 14, 1948, when Israel returns as a nation. Why that is important for us to see is you're going to see throughout the prophecies that we take a look at tonight, God speaking of the remnant 
returning. And when he talks about the remnant returning, he's talking about a small group. The whole kingdom's going into captivity, but a small group's going to return. If you were with us this morning, we talked about the fact that of the two million people that went into or from the land of Egypt in the Exodus, God was not well pleased with most of them. In fact, he was only well pleased with two. Two out of two million, not good odds. When God talks about a remnant, he's talking about a small group that are going to return from the captivity, from the challenges that they face, and seek his face again. We're going to see that. We see that in a, in a scale right after Babylon. <clears throat> with, uh, with Nehemiah, we see it as they again rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild Israel. And we saw it take place or begin to take place in 1948. We saw that maybe come to a little bit more fruition in 1964. Uh, when they regained Jerusalem. And still we are looking for that moment when they recognize Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Now listen, the scripture declares to us in the book of Haggai, we probably won't get there tonight, but eventually we will get to Haggai. And Haggai said, the Lord has said, I will return when my people recognize me. And they call on my name. Then I will return. So in order for him to return means he's been here. He's, it's Jesus Christ talking to the people, saying, I've gone. I'm, I'm in heaven until my people will recognize. Remember, Jesus said, I come in my Father's name, and you didn't receive me. Another will come, how? In his own name, and him you will receive. So they're going to go through yet future, a period of time where they receive a Messiah. We call that Messiah the Antichrist. Whether or not that's a, the best name for him, it's not going to be his name. He's not going to have, you know, Joe Antichrist in his, in, you know, his political agenda or what have you. But he's going to look like the Messiah to the whole world. And the whole world's going to desire to follow him. And when we look at these prophecies in Isaiah, you're going to see what's known as a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Near fulfillment meaning Isaiah wrote it to local time, to those people, and it took place for them. But if we back up and we look at it in light of what's coming in the future, in light of the whole counsel of God's Word, we can see that he's also speaking to the nation further down the line. And so hopefully we'll be able to pull some of those things out tonight as we take a look. Now let's begin nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 8. It says, Now the Lord sent a word against Jacob, and it has fallen on Israel. It's a neat study to go through the Bible and, and try to figure out the different times God calls Jacob Jacob and when he calls him Israel. It's the same person, right? Jacob means deceiver, supplanter, you know, liar, I mean, any of those things is good. Israel means to be governed by God. So in Jacob's life, we can see when he's being himself, right? When the flesh rules, God calls him Jacob. When the spirit rules, God calls him Israel. So when we take a look at the scriptures, you can see in light of how God, what God is calling the nation, who he's talking to. If he calls the nation Jacob, he's saying, man, you guys are off track. He calls him Israel. Well, you know, that could be the remnant. That could be those who desire to, to do things which are pleasing to the Lord. But listen, this word was a word against Jacob, but who did it fall on? Israel. 
The rain falls on the evil and the good, right? When God judges a nation, when he brings that judgment upon the nation, and what we discover in the book of Ezekiel is that God said he looked for someone that would stand in the gap for the nation Israel, and he found nobody. And so his judgment came. When we consider God's judgment coming upon a nation, when we look at it, we need to recognize that which withholds God's judgment is God's righteous people in prayer, interceding for their nation. That's what holds it back. When the righteous no longer intercede for their nation, the judgment comes. And that's kind of what we see taking place. Here's a word against Jacob, and it will fall upon Israel, and it's going to be for all, both kingdoms. <clears throat> he says, now, all the people will know Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria, that's the northern kingdom, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. They're saying, listen, even though God's judgment come and the city be torn down, we'll rebuild it. We're, God's not going to be, this, this judgment is not going to take us down. It's not going to knock us out. Therefore, the Lord shall set up the adversaries of resin against him and spur his enemies on, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they will devour Israel with an open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away but his hand is stretched out still. Now when we look at this phrase, there was an arrogance within the northern kingdom. We don't have to listen to God. He, you know, it's not, whatever, it's just a bunch of talk. Just words on a page, it's not real. In their arrogance, and by the way, the book of Proverbs, when it lists out the things God hates, one of those things is a proud tongue. And so as we consider that, these guys were proud. Hey, we're not going to listen to the God. We don't care about what God has to say. So the Lord is utterly going to bring his judgment. In their rebellion, they do not repent. And as a result, when he says his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still, that means he's not holding back his judgment. He's bringing it all. We see a similar thing take place in the book of Revelation, don't we? Because each time we see a judgment come, the scripture will say, and still... Man did not repent or call upon the name of the Lord. So judgment comes upon judgment comes upon judgment, right? We have, we have uh, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world. And what we see in their character is through it all, they still reject. And that's what's going on here. So this word coming to... Uh, the northern kingdom. Verse 13. For the people do not turn to him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. The people don't turn to him who strikes them. And remember, when we look at this, consider what the Lord is saying and, and see it from light of a parent in, in disciplining our children. We don't discipline our children so that our children hate us. We don't discipline our children just because we want to inflict pain. We want to correct an action. And most of those who study discipline, in fact, uh, uh, Dobson, one of, the, one of the things that helped us with three boys was Dobson. Dobson was a big help. 
And when we read Dobson, one of the things he discussed is discipline, the point of discipline is to bring about repentance. Whatever it is that brings about that repentance, it is successful discipline. It has changed action. Their heart has turned. They return. And probably at one time or another in our disciplining of our children, we've all experienced that. There's probably also times where we have not experienced that, though we discipline, still they rebel. Still they, they go against the ways that we're trying to teach them in. And that's what God is experiencing here with his kids. His children are an outright rebellion against him. And though he brings discipline, they don't turn toward him. They're turning away. They're running further. Now listen... I know sometimes we get the attitude or the idea as parents that, hey, I'm going to withhold discipline because the more I discipline, the more my, my children rebel. Listen, all that shows is what's already in the heart. It doesn't have anything to do with the, the discipline. The Bible says, if you love your children, what? You will discipline them promptly. It's what it teaches. Train up a child in the way they should go, right? That's our role. Train up a child on the way they should go, and when he is old, he won't depart from it. There may be a time when he's young, but when he's old, he will be desiring to walk with the Lord. We've got to trust. We've got to hold on to the promise of God and move forward. So here, this is exactly what God's doing with his kids. This is exactly what he's doing, yet they don't turn to him in repentance. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord will cut off head and tail from Israel, palm branch and bulrush in one day. The elder and honorable, he is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. So when the Lord says, I'm going to cut off the head and the tail, he's taken out the leadership and he's taken out the false prophets. What are the false prophets saying? Nah, God didn't really say that. God's word doesn't really teach that. Boy, it doesn't take us very long if we get on TV to find false prophets today, does it? Just the other day I was looking online for something, and I came across a, 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 a something on the Internet that was, it drew my attention because the name of the deal was the Bible Geek, I think. So I thought, oh, this is some guy talking about stuff in the Bible. So I tuned into him, and it took me about 39 seconds to get irritated and turn him off. Because basically, I don't know why he calls himself the Bible Geek. He may be a geek, but it doesn't have anything to do with the Bible. Because he would take all the, the, anything within the Bible and he would the clearly straight out, straightforward speaking God's word and say, no, that's not really what it is. This is what it is. And it was all this very liberal concept. When we think about the false prophets of Israel, the northern kingdom, that's what you want to think about. Guys that would have looked at the word and say, no, that's not really what the word says. And that's not really what the word means. No, you don't really have to do this. And it's okay if we worship these golden Cast because what's the difference? God is God, and no matter whether you call God this name or that name or the other name, it's all the same. Is that true? That's not what the Word teaches. The Word teaches we're to, to worship God in spirit and in what? Truth. Truth. And so the Lord, when He says, hey, I'm going after Him, who's He going after? He's going after the leader that's taken Him away from his teachings and the false prophet that's teaching lies. Then he goes on. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who are led by them 
They're destroyed. Therefore the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor have mercy in their fatherless and widows. For everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. Literally that, that word, that concept is lewdness. They had crude jokes, you know, it was... Everything was double entendres and, and so forth. And then it says the same phrase. For all this, his anger was not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Again, speaking in judgment, even though he's brought this word, even though he's given opportunity through discipline for them to turn, they refuse to turn. So God's not going to hold back the, the judgment that's coming. The judgment is coming. That when the Lord tells us the wages of sin is death, is that true? So when we sin, what should we expect? We should expect death. Now there are times when we sin and the Lord catches us and we repent and turn and by His grace we don't experience what we deserve, right? But there are also times if we refuse to turn towards the Lord, where does that road lead? It leads to death. That's where it goes. That's where it's going to take them. When he stood before the nation and he said, you have two ways to go, life and death. Follow my precepts or reject me. If you reject me, that road leads to death. If you receive me, that road leads to life. Who is then responsible for the road they're on? It's not God's fault. He said where the road on the left went. And if they chose it, they chose it knowing that it led away from the Lord and ultimately to destruction. Why did they choose it? Because they didn't believe it. Right? I mean, if they actually believed it, they wouldn't choose it. But they didn't believe. Through unbelief, they, they faced destruction. Well, verse 18. For wickedness burns as a fire. It devours the briars and the thorns and kindles the thickets like the forest. And they shall mount up like rising smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up, and the people shall be as fuel for the fire. No man will spare his brother, and he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. He shall devour on the left hand and not be satisfied. Every man shall eat the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh shall devour Ephraim, and Ephraim Manasseh. Together they shall be against Judah." Ephraim and Manasseh, you remember those two guys? That's Joseph's kids. Those are Joseph's kids. That, those two tribes literally make up the tribe of Joseph. They were in the northern kingdom. And he's saying tribe is going to be against tribe, people against people, nation against nation. Doesn't that sound familiar? In the end times, what do we see? Ethnos against ethnos, nation against nation, wars and rumors of war, pestilence, all of these things. Folks, we can watch that happen over and over and over again in the history of the nation of Israel. It's, it's painted out before us. We continue to repeat those same cycles. And here we see that cycle repeating. They're going to attack and devour one another. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Again, that hand stretched out in judgment. Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune, which they have prescribed, to rob the needy of justice and to take what is right from the poor of my people, that widows would be their prey, that they may rob the fatherless. 
But I don't know if you could find a, a better description of our world today than that. Because it's all about corporate greed, isn't it? It's all about whether or not I can make money. I don't care who I have to step on to get there. I don't care who I destroy. How many third world countries have we gone in only to enslave their children to make for us Nikes? But we still buy them. We still are a part of that system that takes advantage of the poor, robs the widows, destroys the orphans. Well, the nice thing about it is is we kind of hide behind it because we don't see it. But all you have to do is go to those countries where they're using them, and you can see it. And they try to say they're cleaning things up, but why do they think they move their factories to those places? Why do they move their factories to a place where they can pay a child 20 cents a day to work instead of building those factories here? That's why. Take advantage of the poor. To rob the widow. Take advantage of the orphan. Folks, if we're looking at this and we're thinking, wow, the Lord's right in His judgment of the northern kingdom, we need to realize when we point our finger at them, there's at least four pointing back at us. Because we're just like them. We're just like them. Scripture goes on. What will you do in the day of punishment? Verse 3. And in the desolation which will come for afar. To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your glory? Without me, they shall bow down among the prisoners. And they shall fall among the slain. This is the same nation who through the leadership of God. With only 300 obliterated over a hundred thousand that came against them in the Midianites when Gideon went forward. Why did they have the victory? Because they're so wonderful? Because God was with them. God says, if I'm not with them, they're going to fall. If I'm not with you, you're going to fall. When our nation rejects the Lord continuously in the actions and the legal uh, things that we choose... When we continue to reject the Lord, do we think somehow that that won't apply to us without the Lord? We'll be able to stand. We'll be that one nation. Read the word. How many powerful nations have come through? Come and gone. Come and gone. When we read about the Assyrians here in a little while, the Assyrians, very cruel nation, they ruled for 700 years. We ain't even 700 years old. But somehow we think we as a nation have arrived to the point where we're so arrogant. Blows me away how arrogant it seems like, you know, every once in a while I'll turn on one of them shows, you know, where where you can listen to the, the congressmen give their speeches, you know, to the three people that are there actually listening. Yeah. And, and you just hear the arrogance. The arrogance and that attitude that we don't need God and we don't need anything and we're Americans. And we just adapt and overcome. And we forget that we adapt and overcome because at one time we were devoted to the Lord, weren't we? And now we reject Him. Those, these days that came upon them, they will come upon us now as well. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. 
Okay, so they're up to that point, and he's talking to the northern kingdom, okay? Now he's going to turn his attention to Assyria. Assyria is the nation through whom God is going to judge his people. Assyria is not saved. They don't walk with the Lord. They're, they're heathens. But God's going to use them as a tool to judge the, the northern kingdom of Israel. And look what he says to them. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. Okay, Literally, God is saying, you are a tool in my hands. The staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation. Okay, He's talking about the northern kingdom. And against the people of my wrath, against my children. I will give him charge to seize the spoil and to take the prey. And to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Who gives him the right to do that? God. Do you realize when we are God's people, nobody can touch us apart from going through God? God's judgment may seem harsh, and God's judgment may seem hard, but even in God's judgment, even in His judgment with us, His discipline that He brings to us, it's never to destroy us, and it's never to obliterate us from His sight. But it is to ensure that we arrive home safely. That we arrive home safe. So, He is bringing this judgment against His children, but never lose sight that they're still His kids. Each of us maybe in one way or another has either experienced or or known someone who has experienced children that have been in outright rebellion, totally left, they're gone. You know, maybe we don't have any relationship with them at all. But from now until the time the Lord comes, that's my kid. He's never not mine. He will always be mine. And as my child... He holds a special place in my heart. And when discipline and those hard things that we have to do, when they come, they come. We go through those things. You know, there but by the the grace of God go I. I know that in, in some of those cases that I've experienced, I walk down that same path. I try to remember those things. and But I always will hold on to the fact he's mine. Always going to be mine. So... He holds that place in my heart. When God looks at Assyria, Assyria gets this attitude like they're so wonderful and that God didn't give them gift wrap for Assyria, the northern kingdom. And in their pride and arrogance, the Lord is going to judge the tool that he uses to bring judgment. And he does that over and over and over again. Didn't he do the same thing for Babylon? You remember Nebuchadnezzar? Oh, this is the kingdom that I have built. And what did the Lord say? You're going to build nothing if I didn't give it to you. And so that judgment befell Nebuchadnezzar. And that judgment falls upon Assyria. Look at this next section of Scripture, what he says. Yet he does not mean so, nor does his heart think so. This is what he's saying about the leader of Assyria. He doesn't think or, or consider that this is something that God has given him. Some opportunity that the Lord has laid out for him in his utter rejection. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off not a few nations. One of the things that you'll see from the king of Assyria 
if, is that he's going to go into different kingdoms and he's going to carry with him the heads of kings and the idols of their gods. And he's going to put it out in front of the land and he's going to say, all of these nations I destroyed and all of these idols I captured, these gods could not stop me, neither can your God stop me. Nations would commit mass suicide to keep from being conquered by the Assyrians. That was their attitude. Now, God had given to them the northern kingdom. God did not give to them the southern. King of Assyria, he thinks, it's all mine, I'll take what I want. And that leads to his destruction. Because when he says this of the northern kingdom, it's true. God's not with them anymore. They've rejected him. When we reject the Lord, we stand on our own. And so they're destroyed. But when they come to the southern kingdom, not perfect, mind you. They're not perfect. They're still sinners, saved by grace. But their heart was still toward the Lord. When he comes to them, God wipes them out. One day. One night. Utterly destroyed. No more proud tongue. So this is what the king is saying. This is his proud tongue. Listen. He says, Are not my princes altogether kings? So if his princes are kings, what does that make him? The king of kings? That's what he said. I'm the king of kings. Lord of lords. I am over everything. He had, in each of the kingdoms he conquered, he would set up a vassal king, right? Someone that would rule that land in his absence. That answered to him. That brought tribute to him. So he's saying here, I am the king of kings. Is not Kalno or Kalno like Charshemes? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? Here's what he's saying. In each of these cities, they said their gods would deliver them. Each of these cities said I couldn't take them. And each of these cities I conquered. Each of these places, I have the heads of their kings on my staff. That's what he's laying out when he lays out these cities. Some were conquered earlier, some were conquered later, but all were conquered. As my hand, listen, as my hand has found the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images excelled those of Jerusalem and Samaria, as I have done to Samaria and her idols, so I not do also, or shall I not do also to Jerusalem and her idols? Where's Jerusalem? That's not northern kingdom. That's southern kingdom. Samaria is the northern kingdom. You hear what he's saying? Hey, the the idols of Samaria are better than the idols in Jerusalem. And I wipe them out. And I'm going to wipe you out too. And that's the word King Shennacherib brings against Judah. And the king of Judah at the time, he lays that out before the Lord. Hezekiah says, Lord, look what he's saying about you. One of the smarter things hezekiah did and the lord became his army his rear guard lord gave unto him the victory verse 12 therefore it shall come to pass when the lord has performed all his work on mount zion and mount zion is another name for jerusalem and on jerusalem that he will say i will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of assyria and the glory of his haughty looks For he says, again, now these are the words of the king of Assyria, by the strength of my hand I have done it. 
And by my wisdom I am prudent. Also I have removed the boundaries of the people, and I have robbed their treasuries. So I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. My hand has found like a nest the riches of the people. And as one gathers eggs that are left, I have gathered all the earth. There is no one who moved his wing nor opened his mouth even with a peep. That's a pretty proud guy, right? But look at what the Lord says. Shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? The Lord says, this is like the axe saying, what a great thing he does. If I don't use him, he doesn't do anything. If I don't use it, then he accomplishes nothing. Or shall the saw itself exalt against him who saws with it? As if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up. Or as if a staff could lift up as if it were not wood. Therefore the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will send leanness among his fat ones. And under his glory he will kindle a fire like the burning He will kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. Then look at verse 17. So the light of Israel will be for a fire. Who's the light of Israel? John 1.9. John 1.9 tells us who the light of Israel was. Jesus and the light shone among men. Remember? And they, what? Did behold His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. What did Jesus say? I am what? The light of the world. He's the light of Jerusalem spoken of here. The light of Israel will be for a fire and His Holy One for a flame. It will burn and devour His thorns and His briars in one day. In one day. The Lord will destroy all. Who is the captain of the Lord's army? Who is the captain of the Lord's hosts? We meet him in the book of Joshua in the first chapter. Joshua beginning to go into battle against Jericho. He's out one night wandering around thinking about the battle coming. And he bumps into a guy. Uh, He looks like an angel. Bright, white, big sword. He's standing there and, and... Joshua comes up to him and says, so are you for us or for them? You remember what he said? No. I'm not for you or for them. I am the captain of the Lord's army. The question is not who am I for. The question is who are you for? You for? What did he tell Joshua to do? He said, take off your sandals You are on holy ground. Just like Moses at the burning bush. And Joshua is going to worship him. Who was it? Well, we know it couldn't be God the Father, right? The Bible says no man can see the Father and live. It's God the Son. The angel of Yahweh. The messenger of God. God the Word. The way in which God will relate to His people through Jesus Christ. And so we see that spoken of here. Hey, he's the light of Israel. And it will consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field, both soul and body. 
And they will be as when a sick man wastes away. And the rest of the trees, his forest, will be so few in number that a child may write them. When God judges Assyria in one night, he wipes out 185,000 men in his army. And he only uses one angel to do it. That should bring into light what Jesus said when he said to Peter, when Peter drew his sword, Jesus said, put away your sword. Don't you know if you live by the sword, you what? Die by the sword. I could call who? 10,000 angels. Wow. One angel killed 185,000 by himself. And the Bible don't say he was sweating that. That's just what he did. What would 10,000 do? Destroy the world? And set him free? That's how the song goes, right? He could have called 10,000 angels. So when we consider this, the Lord says, hey, this guy's proud, and, and I'm going to judge him. I'm going to judge him for his attitude. I'm going to judge him for how he treats my kids. I'm going to send him there to judge my children and to take them into captivity, but he will be responsible for what he does. And he was. He was responsible for what he did. The judgment was to come, but he had his human responsibility worked within God's sovereignty. And he chose to be a part, to be used in that way, and ultimately to be judged for it. Look at verse 20. And it will come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped to the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them. They're not going to put their faith and trust in the Assyrian king. They're not going to put their faith and trust in Egypt. They're not going to put their faith and trust in the might of armies. Where does their faith and trust need to be? In the Lord God Almighty. In the Lord God Almighty. That's where they're going to put their faith. And this word for remnant, we need to understand, that is a small handful. It's not a vast number. If we consider every human being who has ever lived on the earth, and we consider those who are true believers, it will be a remnant. It's not going to be a vast, huge, gigantic number. It'll be a remnant. Anybody can give lip service, right? But God's not interested in lip service. He said, my people draw near to me with their lips, but what? Their hearts are far from me. How does the Lord judge? He judges with righteous judgment, right? His righteous judgment. Does God judge on the outside? He says, man judges on the outside. How does God judge? The heart. The heart. The Lord knows. And so his remnant... They'll always know they are His remnant because they will trust in Him. Today, in the nation of Israel, less than 10% believe or, or follow the teachings of Judaism. Less than 10%. More than 70% are atheists. So they haven't returned yet. But they will. Now, the Lord also declares, some people get confused because the book of Romans tells us that all of Israel will be saved. But hold on to this. Not everyone who calls himself Israel is of Israel. 
any more than everyone who calls himself a Christian is a Christian. Your salvation in the Old Testament did not ever depend on who your parents were. It depended on where your heart was. To the nation of Israel was given favor. Why? They had the oracles of God. They had the word. So they had the opportunity. But throughout history, people came to know the living God through their witness. They would proselytize and ultimately become either God-fearers or Jews through the act of circumcision and enter into the covenantal relationship just as, as Israel was in and their parents weren't Jews at all. So when the Bible speaks of Israel being saved, know that it's talking about the real Israel. And that's not the church, by the way. It's a nation. God's promise to the 12 tribes, to those who fear Him and follow Him. That remnant of Israel, in verse 20, and it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such of it has escaped from the house of Jacob will never again depend on those who defeated him, but will depend upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all the land. Listen, he's not only looking to that time in which he wrote. Can't you see he's looking down the line to the nation of Israel? That remnant will return. That judgment is still coming. We go through that period of time when God once again turns his eyes from the church to the nation of Israel in the 70th week of Daniel, that final seven-year period of prophetic history that we still await. When the tribulation begins, the church immediately will be taken home to be with the Lord. Revelation chapter 4 and 5, the church is in heaven. There's no way to get around that. We can all worry and argue about whether it's a beginning, middle, or end, and I don't care what you believe. I'll explain it to you on the way up. It's going to be in the beginning. God's not pouring out his judgment upon his people. He doesn't pour out his judgment upon his children that are following him. Did judgment come on Judah? No. Judgment didn't come on Judah. Did Lord bring his judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah while Lot was there? And Lot wasn't the most righteous guy I ever saw. Before that judgment came, what did God do to, to, to Lot? He took him out. He took him out. Before judgment came, the whole counsel of God's word will teach and hold the point that God is not going to pour out the wrath that he poured out upon his son on the cross on us. When that comes... When that day arrives, when we see Jesus face to face, God again is going to turn his direction toward the nation of Israel and he's going to work through them. 144,000, 12,000 each of the 12 tribes will take the gospel, the same gospel of the Old and the New Testament to the world. 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes, they are Jewish males that God has called, that the Lord will ordain, that will go throughout the nation and God again will turn his attention will people be saved sure they will they'll be called tribulation saints they'll be martyred for the love of Jesus Christ and these are the things that Isaiah is seeing afar off even in the events that are laying right before him 
Look at verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrian. He will strike you with a rod and lift up his staff against you in the manner of Egypt. For yet a little while, and the indignation will cease, as will my anger in their destruction. By the way, that word, the Assyrian, is also a title used of the Antichrist. It is used here in conjunction with the king of Assyria. Obviously, he's talking about the Assyrian. But it is also a title for the Antichrist, the Assyrian. And the Lord of hosts will stir up a scourge for him like the solder of Midian at the rock of Oreb. That is the battle of Gideon and his mighty 300. Gideon and his 300 that destroyed the Midianites at the rock of Oreb. Or... As his rod was on the sea. What is that a reference to? The crossing of the children of Israel, the Red Sea. How God delivered his people. That's how God's going to deliver the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, during the tribulation period. All those who call upon his name. All those who recognize him as a Messiah. We, we know, the Bible seems to indicate that the nation of Israel is going to be, uh, they're going to desire, Satan is going to desire to eat them alive. Uh, Revelation chapter 12. When the devil or when the, when the dragon tried to eat the baby, the baby is the Messiah, the Mashiach Nagid, the, the King Jesus Christ, but he's not able. And the baby is what? Taken up into heaven. Where is Jesus today? The right hand of God, up into heaven. And what does it, what did the dragon do? He turned his attention to the people. The people of that child, the offspring the nation of Israel and the tribulation saints. And such persecution will arise as has never been seen. And God says, when that's taken place, I'm going to take care of them just like I took care of them with Gideon in the 300 and just like I took care of them in Egypt. The Bible seems to indicate that the nation of Israel is going to flee from the face of Antichrist and hide themselves in the rock. Isn't that interesting? Hide themselves in the rock. The rock. Remember that rock that Moses struck? And there was a cleft in the rock and water gushed out? You know that old hymn that says, Rock of Ages, what? Cleft for me? Let me hide myself in thee. That's the concept. The nation of Israel will hide themselves in the rock. Most scholars believe they're going to go to Petra. Why? Because Petra means rock. A city carved out of solid stone, sandstone, in a seek that is five foot wide and in some places a thousand feet tall. Well, you better have a heck of a smart bomb to get down in there. But hey, God's going to supernaturally protect the nation of Israel and those who flee. And, And I think this is what he's talking about. Now, it's also speaking of God protecting the southern kingdom or the tribe, or the, or the uh, southern kingdom of Judah. Okay, he goes on, verse 27. It will come to pass in that day that the burden will be taken away from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. Interesting phrase, isn't it? The yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. What did Jesus say? Take my yoke upon you, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
And he was called Jesus. Most people think his last name was Christ, right? You know what Christ means, right? The anointed one. The anointed one. So, this is a reference. I believe this is a reference to Christ. And the fact that he's going to take the yoke of bondage from those people, from off of them. Now, beginning in verse 28 through verse 32, Isaiah is going to give a play-by-play. If you were watching the game tonight, you'd be hearing play-by-play. Oh, he's breaking loose. He's on the 50, the 40, the 30, the 20. He could go all the way, right? <clears throat> so this is what he's saying. Let, let, me, let me explain it to you as we go through. So he has come to Aiath. He has passed Migron at Migmash. He has attended to his equipment. They have gone along the ridge. They have taken up lodging at Geba. Ramah is afraid. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Lift your voice, O daughter of Galem. Cause it to be heard as far as Laish, O poor Anathoth. Now, it's all these names that are hard to say, right? Here's what he's saying. In Ai, or Aiath, he's 30 miles away. Migron, he's 30 miles away. At Michmash, he's seven and a half miles. At Geba, he's six miles. At Ramah, he's six miles. At Gibeah, he's four miles. He's given a play-by-play as the king is coming, as judgment is being brought. He's telling them, these are the cities he's coming. This is how close he's getting. You can almost hear him saying, he could go all the way. Till he comes all the way to Jerusalem. And that's as far he's going to get. So as he comes, look, that's what he's laying out. Madmina has fled. That's one or two miles away. Uh, the inhabitants of Gebam seek refuge. And as yet, he will remain at Nob that day. That's just outside the city. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. But look at verse 33. Behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will lop off the bow with terror, those of high stature will be hewn down, and the haughty will be humbled. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. So there's this play-by-play where he could go all the way, but he's not going to. He gets as far as the Lord will let him come, and then he will be no more. But that's what we see um, Isaiah given. Now, we're not going to go very far in chapter 11, but... There's some of this that I definitely want to try to get to tonight. So we'll keep going now. He's going to move forward. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. This is an incredible prophecy and you really need to grasp it. The stem of Jesse is the cause. The one who has caused Jesse. A rod will come out of the stem. What, who is the cause of Jesse? God is the cause of Jesse. And through the root, a rod will grow out of the root, come forth from God, out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch will grow out of his roots. The branch will grow out of his roots. Folks, if you look in the book of Matthew, it'll say, therefore, basic Jackie paraphrase, uh, he was called the Nazarene according to the scriptures, and it will give you this reference. Why? Because the word branch is Nazer, the root word for the Nazarene. Jesus being called the Nazarene is the same thing as calling him the branch, which is a fulfillment of this prophecy according to Matthew 
is a fulfillment of this prophecy that we see a rod from the stem of Jesse, a rod, a tool, if you will, in the hands of God. That tool in the hands of God will be the branch, and he will grow out of the roots. If the roots is God, then he will bear within himself the nature of God as well. And what's it say in verse 2? And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The branch is a him. It's not a thing. The branch is a him. Nazar, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord. Now, I want you to look. We're going to see the Spirit. Every time you see the word Spirit, it is in the singular. Even when it's used in a, a dual functioning form or in a plural concept. Instead of spirits, though, it is always the Spirit. Why? Because this is from which we gather the sevenfold Spirit of God from the book of Revelation, from Isaiah 11.2. First, the Spirit of the Lord, one. Then, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. Again, singular Spirit used of two, or of a pair, singular used. We're still talking of one Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Sevenfold spirit of God, the complete work of the Holy Spirit. The third person within the Trinity, the God, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon the branch. Didn't we see that? In the life of Jesus Christ, didn't the Spirit descend upon him as a dove? Didn't the Father in heaven say, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased? What do you have in one moment, in one place? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In one, in unity, in agreement, doing what was promised here in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. Well, it's going to continue to talk about him. His delight, this branch, is in the fear of the Lord. Does that describe Jesus? He said, I only do the things which my Father has given me to do. I only speak the words which my Father has told me to speak. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes. Did Jesus judge by what he saw? If he did, he'd have never talked to the woman at the well in Samaria. If he did, he would have never touched the leper who came to him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He didn't judge by the sight of his eyes nor decide by the hearing of his ears. If he did that, when they brought the woman caught in the act of adultery, he would have had her stoned. That's what the law said. But he didn't judge by his sight of eyes or by his hearing. How did he judge? But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the kingdom of God. If you ever do a study of the Beatitudes, you need to realize it doesn't say blessed will be. It says blessed what? Are. Now. Not later. Right now. Oh, how happy. Blessed be. Oh, how happy are the meek. 
right now. And this is what Jesus does. This is how Jesus judges. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. In Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus returns, and on his thigh is written a name, the Word of God. When he returns, he will destroy the Antichrist and his armies by what? The power of his breath. He's going to speak the word. What holds everything together? What does Colossians tell us? Colossians chapter 3 tells us that in him, Christ, all things consist. That means he holds everything together. So how hard would it be for him to ride through an army and just let go of all of them? And all the pieces just go apart. That's what he's going to do. By the word of his mouth, by the rod The sword, the double-edged sword, it doesn't mean that a double-edged sword is going to come out of his mouth and he's going to chop people with it. What is a double-edged sword? The Word of God is sharp as a what? Two-edged sword. It's the Word of God with which he's going to judge. This is talking about Jesus' judgment. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. So listen, he first tells us about Nazar, the the branch, the Messiah coming. He tells us how the Messiah is going to judge. Is that taking place yet? He hasn't judged yet. The judgment of the nations takes place in Matthew chapter 25. In the, in the, the valley of judgment, trying to remember, it was right near the Kidron Valley and the valley of Gehenna. It'll come to me as soon as I leave. But it's right in the outskirts of Jerusalem, the, the place where the Jews believe the judgment of the nations is going to take place. Where Jesus is going to do this judgment. Remember what it says in Matthew chapter 25? When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And they said, when have we done these things, Lord? And the Lord said to them, inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, my what? Brethren, you've done it unto me. And as much as you have not done it to the least of these, my brethren, you have not done it to me. That's the judgment of the nations. What did they do with God's kids during the tribulation period when the Antichrist was trying to wipe them all out? Depending on their choices, they'll enter into the millennial kingdom or they will be judged and await the great white throne judgment at the end of time. They won't enter into the millennial kingdom. So the very next phrase, guys, verse 6, we're in the millennial kingdom. We're in the millennial kingdom. Now, you've often heard that phrase, and the lion will lie down with the lamb. Just one small problem, that's not in the Bible. The Bible never says the lion will lay down with the lamb. It says the wolf will lay down with the lamb. So all those cool pictures that show the lion laying down with the lamb, it's still the right concept. It's just not in the Bible. Here's what the Bible tells us. The Bible says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child will lead them. When Jesus brings on the kingdom, the millennial reign, and we believe Calvary Chapel, the literal Millennial reign of Christ, when Gabriel said to Mary, your son will sit on the throne of David, we believe he meant it. Jesus Christ will reign for a thousand years after the tribulation period. 
You and I, those who are of the church, we take up a, a responsibility in heaven. We fulfill the role of the 24 elders. You want to know what we're going to do in heaven? Read Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And wherever you see the 24 elders, that's speaking of us. 24 elders. The priesthood was divided into 24 courses. You and I, the church, the bride of Christ, are called to be kings and what? Priests. A a holy priesthood, a holy nation unto God, divided into the 24 elders. When we see that, it's representative of the church, the church with Christ forever from that point forward. In the millennium, what will we do? Whatever Jesus tells us to do. But we don't have to worry about falling. We won't have to worry about sin. We will be like he is. Okay? But everyone else who enters into the millennium is going to experience this in a different degree than we will. They will experience the curse lifted. You understand what a blessing that is? Like when my son's out pacing, he goes outside and paces in the grass. I actually have to think about you know, making sure there's not some animal out there thinking he looks yummy. And before you think that's a crazy idea, a 19-year-old girl in Canada thought it was no big deal, but she was eaten by coyotes. 19-year-old. That's the curse, right? Sin in this world brought death. Prior to sin, there was no death. When Jesus rules and reigns, it's going to go back to like it was in the Garden of Eden. The wolf doesn't eat the lamb anymore. They all eat grass. They all play and frolic and have fun, and a little child can be in the midst of them all. You imagine a little child playing with a wolf. You never have to worry about the the wolf biting them. Never have to worry about a wild animal coming upon him. It won't happen because the earth will be perfected. Look what he says. The cow and the bear will graze... Their young ones will lie down together. The cow and the bear, their cubs, will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. Well, that would be good news. They don't want to be eaten by a lion. The nursing child will play by the cobra's hole. Wouldn't think about doing that today. But then you can. Why? Because the cobra doesn't bite. Just going to come up and play with them. Be a little rattle for him. The little rattlesnake come by and the baby can just pick it up and rattle. Don't have to worry about getting bit because the curse is done away with. They listen to this, verse 9. They will not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. They will not study war anymore. It's all over. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day... There will be a root of Jesse. The root of Jesse is Jesus Christ, who will stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles will seek him. And his resting place, well, that shall be glorious. That's far as I wanted to go tonight. Taking a look at that kingdom age, what that kingdom's going to be like. Hey, Isaiah's going to say more about it than anybody else. Over and over and over again, he's going to give us little insights into What's going to take place we come to the kingdom age? So, uh, why don't you stand up with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time we could share together, Lord. We thank you for the the truth of your word, God, as you lay out for us uh, 
the book of Isaiah, man, it's just so much fun to, to see what you've done, what you're doing, and how it lays out prophetically. Lord, we, we ask, God, that you would just bless this time that we have shared together. Lord, we pray that you would anoint the time that we have still before us uh, as we just seek your face in worship tonight. Father, we ask that in this place, God, you might be glorified and magnified. Lord, that we would learn from the lessons of the northern and southern kingdom, that we would recognize that we are still sinners in the hand of an angry God who loves me. And it's so mind-boggling to consider that God hates sin, but he loves me so much, he would have his son pay that price that I might spend eternity with him. Lord, may we learn the lessons that you lay out for us. So what happens when we reject your truth? What happens when we turn away from you? May we choose. Choose this day, as Joshua said, whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Lord, we lay this time before you in worship and praise. We give you all the praise and the glory for what you have accomplished and what you continue to do in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.